Good morning. Welcome to Another Words. My guest this morning is is someone I've wanted to have on for a while. He is the CEO, am I right about that? Sure. CEO of the Jewish Museum of Maryland. Hello, the Jewish Museum of Maryland. And it is Marvin, I am so sorry, I can't pull up the file. What's your last name? Hi, I'm Marvin Pinkert. Hi, Marvin Pinkert. And the CEO of a museum, for those who expected it to be someone who deals with the exhibits and all that, basically is like the president of a university. He runs the business part, which doesn't mean he doesn't have anything to do with the exhibits. He does, and we'll talk about a little bit about that in a minute. So the only person I was aware of who worked at a museum were the docents, and the which, as far as I know, they're the guides. Yes. Okay. And the curators who actually uh, create and maintain the exhibits. Is that right? Well, curators do many things, and it depends on the institution and the type of exhibit you're talking about. An art museum is different than a history museum, different that than a science sense. museum. But a curator generally is the one who's responsible for the content of an exhibit. Okay. So that he doesn't necessarily, he or she doesn't necessarily put it together. No, that would tend to be the people who are the designer, the fabricator. Those are the people who physically uh, manage the exhibit. An exhibit team typically consists of a project manager Uh and then a designer, a fabricator. Uh, You may also have either that individual or someone else work as the lighting designer for the exhibit. Uh, So those are some of the members of the team at our institution. We also have the education director sitting on every exhibit uh, team because it's it's important that we uh, have reference to the educational plan for the exhibit. Now, I'm guessing most museums, at least history museums, work in a similar manner. The museums that I have been to all have an educational outreach yes. aspect. Okay, so that's... You can and that's, that's really something that has occurred in the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, when I first entered the museum field, it was... Uh, not dominated by institutions that had an explicit educational purpose, but today it is. Part of the mission of the institution, in almost all cases, institutions have uh, changed their mission to read something other than we exist to preserve alone. They Mm -hmm. say we exist to preserve and share, or we exist to preserve and educate, so that as the missions changed over the last 20 or 30 years, So did the uh, organizations. The idea is that uh, you should be open to the general public gaining something from your institution and its collection and also be a place to share experiences with others. Now, your history, Marvin and I were talking earlier, listeners, and as a child, the only job he knew of at a museum was a guard. Yeah, I, I drove my parents crazy as a little kid. Uh, we Our synagogue was located in Hyde Park in Chicago, and we lived further south, and that meant that we had to pass by the Museum of Science and Industry every Saturday on the way to synagogue. And I would scream out from the back seat, museum, museum, museum. <laughs> I was so passionate about the place. By the time I was nine, I was giving tours to all of my relatives from the West Coast. 
And, uh, you know, but I thought to myself, the only person I've ever seen at the museum is a guard. So I figure that's the only people who work there. Where did this enthusiasm for museums come from? I mean, you were were enthused before you could even say the word properly. That's correct. And this is because of the way that the experience made me feel. And okay, so I, your parents had taken you to the oh museum. Oh, yeah. Okay. They, 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 they gave in to my demands more often than I'd want to admit. The first exhibit that I remember being hooked on was in an exhibit called Mathematica, of all things. They were very creative about how they put it together. And to illustrate the concept of a Mobius strip, they had a train running on a Mobius strip, a little model train. Wow. And, of course, that meant that it went was sometimes inside and sometimes outside. And sometimes right side up. And, and sometimes, sometimes upside, upside down. down. Yeah. And I kept staring at that thing, trying to figure out how in the world it did that. The, the Mobius strip, for anyone who uh, doesn't know the name, it's the strip that, like, you could take a pencil and drag it along a paper Mobius, and, and you would never, ever have to pick the pencil up to right. cover both sides. Right. So that's what he's talking about. And as a child, that was something that absolutely fascinated me. It fascinates adults. (laughs) And so uh, it was my introduction to the way that museums could change your point of view and how they could inspire you. And since then, I Mm -hmm. had a chance to meet people like Stephen Jay Gould and Colin Powell, etc. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And when I would talk to them about what got them into their field, Colin Powell talked about visiting... uh, Gettysburg and his parents taking him out to the military battlefield. Uh, Stephen Jay Gould famously was at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Mm-hmm. I began to realize how many people as children had these very impactful experiences with museums that lasted their entire life. One of my favorite stories is told by a museum researcher by the name of John Falk, who was in Iowa talking about museum education. And a group of school teachers in the audience were very skeptical, and one of them stopped him and said, John, you're talking about museum education. Students go to a museum maybe two hours in a year. What kind of education is that? And he stopped the lecture and he said, so how many of you were on a field trip as a kid? And uh, most people raised their hands, and he said, so can you tell me anything about it? And people gave him a description, uh, since I was at the Museum of Science and Industry, which is why he told me the story. They talked about the coal mine at the Museum of Science and Industry Mm -hmm. and the submarine. And then he said, okay, what happened next? Next, that day at school, that week, that month. Nobody remembered anything but the (laughs) trip. (laughs) And it was a really dramatic presentation of how what museums, we're we're not in the business of information, we're in the business of inspiration. If all we wanted to do was push data, we would be better off as a website. But the reason that we're a museum is because when something goes from being data to being an experience, when it goes from somebody telling you to you discovering, it becomes knowledge that you keep for a lifetime rather than knowledge that comes in one ear and goes out the other. Now, let's let's talk about... uh, the exhibits here. Now, first of all, Jewish Museum of Maryland makes it sound like it's only of value to Jews. I would hope not. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I know that it might Tell sound that way, not. but Tell it's us not. why it's not. Well, because the, first of all, the Jewish experience is a microcosm of the experience of many other immigrant groups who came to America. The Jewish experience, at least in America, 
has had a profound impact on America. Right. I mean, there, well, there is no American history without Jewish American history. Yeah, some examples are the exhibit we're going to talk about more in a second, Harry Houdini, right. who was Jewish. He, he was not born in America, but he became an American. Right. Um, a lot of modern medicine, and, and when I say a lot, listeners, what I mean is a higher percentage than would be expected. Right. Um, Given their numbers total, uh, medicine has been impacted more strongly by Jews in this country than uh, a lot of than than you might think. American musical theater was created by Jews, as well as most Christmas carols. I did not know that. <laughs> okay, uh, White Christmas. It, the influence on American culture yeah. has been profound. Goes way beyond. The things that you associate right. with locks and bagels yeah. and Jewish traditions. Although locks and bagels are important. <laughs> Do you remember no a time when only Jews knew what bagels were? I am afraid I'm old enough to remember that. I time. do too. <laughs> but now everybody knows what they are. And and you've had an exhibit on medicine. Right. I know that. What other exhibits have you had that we wouldn't think Jews had that much of an influence on? Well, we had the comic books exhibit, Zappow Band. Is Stan Lee Jewish? Yes, he is. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and the creators of Superman were Jewish. They told the story of an alien who came to America who was uh, uh, the, more American than anyone around him. So it was an encapsulation of their immigrant the, experience. Right. So let's talk about Houdini's rise to fame. It was not instantaneous. No, but let's it, it, let's yes. gloss over the hard part. Like, you know, just how well, did our, he start? I have to point out that the exhibit uh, does does not gloss over the hard part. He starts. Okay. Well, then we the, definitely gloss over him here because if you want to hear more about him, come to the exhibit. Okay. So um, he uh, starts out at the Young Men's Hebrew Association doing a show as Eric, the Prince of the Air. He gets involved in vaudeville, and a man by the name of Martin Beck says, you know, as a magician, you're one in a thousand, but as a handcuff artist, you're one of a kind, and persuades him to focus on the handcuffs. How did he get into music in the first place? M m magic? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How did he get into magic in the first place? Boy, I'm having trouble with words. But he also went down to Coney Island uh, with, mm -hmm. with his uh, friend from the necktie business, a man by the name of Jack Hyman, Jacob Hyman. And um, they uh, performed an act called Metamorphosis, which, mm -hmm. in which he escapes from a trunk uh, and Jack ends up inside the trunk and vice versa. <laughs> Uh, he, while he's in Coney Island, he and his brother, in quotation marks, meet the Floral Sisters, who also aren't sisters. And that's <laughs> where he meets Bess, his future wife. Mm. And uh, so... Uh, one of the not-sisters. And, and he is one of the not-brothers. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> the, and, and they had a very happy marriage. Yes. Right? Yes. For many, many years. Yeah. Uh, until well, his death. Until his death. Yeah. And uh, to some degree, Bess continued that relationship in her own way after his death. Yep. Um, um, let's, let's just real quickly touch on that because I don't want to run out of time before we do it. Houdini was into the metaphysical 
in that he wanted to communicate with his dead mother. That's, that's what started true. it, isn't it? That, you know, there are disputes as to whether that's what started it, but it certainly was a major factor. It mm-hmm. accelerated whatever skepticism he had about spiritualists. Mm-hmm. He had developed a friendship with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle of Sherlock Holmes fame, uh, and Sir, Ar- Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a major follower of spiritualist beliefs, the idea that you could communicate mm-hmm. with the dead. In fact, his second wife uh, was a medium. And she volunteered to uh, have a seance with Houdini and to communicate with his mother. Afterwards, he notes that there were a few problems here. To start with, she was an automatic writer. Yeah, it's when the pencil's in your hand, but you're not guiding what it writes. And so the first thing she wrote down was a large cross, which he figured was not his mother. And then after that, everything was in perfect English. And he pointed out that his mother mother could barely speak English. English. So uh, he was made very skeptical, and shortly thereafter, he begins really a third chapter in his life. Well, after he breaks the magic off his friendship with uh, Doyle. Doyle yeah. And then in the third chapter of his life, he's, in addition to doing magic and escapes, he has as a third act the uh, attack on fake mediums. Yeah, which, of course, was very popular. Especially after World War I. Uh, where uh, the mediums were uh, ubiquitous. They had oh, started, I didn't know that. Okay. Uh, so many people had lost uh, relatives in the war, and including oh. Arthur Conan Doyle, who lost both his son and his brother, mm. uh, that they were desperate to reach to the other side. And uh, that spawned a whole industry of phony mediums. And his goal, Houdini's goal, was to debunk it. Right so that people did not get their hopes up. And right. He felt money. that it was okay yeah. to uh, pay to be fooled, but not okay to fool people into paying. Very good way of saying it. <laughs> so now let's go back to what you were saying before, that uh, someone he was working with said, as a magician, magician, you're one in a thousand, but as an escape artist, you're one of a kind, or as a handcuff, right. one of a kind. Right. Yeah, this is what I my research showed, which is, not at all comparable to yours, but just research for this interview. He had an amazing knack for picking locks. Yes, he did. And he had a combination of his physical, he was an athlete as a youth, and so he had tremendous physical uh, agility and strength. Which he maintained. Right. Which was crucial to his success. Right, yeah. uh, especially in the escape business. And then he was, for someone who had very little formal schooling, he read everything he could about locks and picks and the mm-hmm. way that they worked. And so he was truly an expert uh, on what could and couldn't be done. And uh, he also was a tremendous publicist. He understood uh, that if he escaped, the, the, the escapes where he's hanging off a building and he is in a straitjacket typically took place directly across from the whatever city's newspaper was there, for example, on Charles <laughs> Street in Baltimore. Uh, across from the sun. Okay. Uh, and so, hey, look, Marge, there's a guy hanging <laughs> off a building in a straitjacket. Wonder what that's about. <laughs> uh, well, we had 50,000 people were assembled on Charles Street to see mm-hmm. his, but it, it did help that he was directly across from the newspaper office. It's all about marketing. Right. We and he was a master that. marketer. Yeah. The one quality that was key to everything that he did was his determination. Yeah, but as, by, yeah. by his own uh, um, account, he, it's the last quote in the exhibit, my brain is the key that sets me free. 
And that really is what you come away with, that Houdini, his endless curiosity about everything. He was in the movie business. He was in, he was a patent, uh, he patented inventions. He was always looking for what was on the next horizon. And that really is what kept him uh, a success. So he was just an amazing person, physically and mentally. No doubt about it. And, and I feel very lucky that we were able to produce an exhibit on and, and he Yes, and that exhibit, again, is playing through January, or it is here from January 21st, January 2019. 21st of this coming year, 2019. And where, it, let's do some contact information. Uh, again, the name is the... Jewish Museum of Maryland. Now, you can just go to, uh, you can Google it. Right. Or you can type in www.jewishmuseummd.org. So, can you give us a little hint of what might be coming next? Sure. Uh, Mm -hmm. In uh, February, we're hosting an exhibit from the Jewish Museum of Shanghai on uh, the 20,000 Jewish refugees who settled in Shanghai uh, during World War II, the largest refugee community uh, of Jews okay. during the war. Uh, it's the first exhibit we'll do on Mandarin and English. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then in uh, April, we're hosting uh, two exhibits. One is Stitching History from the Holocaust, about uh, two people who attempted to survive by sending her wife's, his wife's designs for fashion to the United States are very forward-looking. Unfortunately, they did not get the permission to emigrate, and uh, but they have recreated the dresses, oh. and they are quite remarkable. Okay, so look for that coming up. Right. Uh, this is all on your website, too, yes. correct? Okay, so again, Marvin Pinkert, the director of the Jewish Museum of Maryland. You can Google it or just go jewishmuseummd.org. Marvin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Susan. You're welcome. Really enjoyed talking with you. Okay, and you've been listening to In Other Words, and I am your host, Susan Scher. You can find me at inotherwordsgroup.com. You can find me on at susanscher.com, and you can find me on iTunes or Podbean. Thank you so much for joining us. Join us again. Bye-bye. And you've been listening to In Other Words. I am your host of In Other Words, Susan Share. You can find me and my editing and writing business at inotherwordsgroup.com, spelled exactly like it sounds, or susanshare.com. And you can find my podcasts at podbean.com or on iTunes. Thank you so much for joining us. Join us again. Bye-bye.